Hi everyone, I'm Sanya Faruqi and welcome to the Sanya Faruqi Show. Today we have with us someone who has been working as a journalist and a communications expert in London, but she has also been in the news for a few topics that we will be discussing in today's show. Masarat, thank you so much and a very warm welcome. I'm so glad that you were able to take your time out. I know we're all working from home and it's all chaotic everywhere, but I appreciate that you were able to take your time out and join us. Uh, before I let... You speak, and before we uh, start a discussion, I'm just going to quickly introduce you. You, uh, Masarath, is the chairperson of the DHP Foundation, which is a non-profit based out of Rajasthan, India. She's also the curator of South Asia's largest TEDx event, TEDx Shikhavati, which takes place in a small town in India with attendees from nearby villages and hamlets. Her parallel life, as she says, is working as a communications consultant in London. She currently blogs on mediums under her name. Her interests are in Islam and feminism. She lives in London with her husband and has a master's from SOAS in media and development. Masarath, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much. So I'm really glad that we are able to have this conversation and, and you know, uh, spend the next 30 to 40 minutes uh, just having some um, meaningful uh, topics that we will be you know, sort of discussing over. Well, thank you so much uh, for the intro and thank you so much for having me in this conversation. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's yeah. like I said, uh, uh, when I was setting this up, I said, you know, we're sort of done with 2020. So there are no more bookshelves in the background. You have a glorious view of my kitchen and all sort of things in the background. So uh, yeah, 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 let's get started. Well, that's the life now. Um, Masarath, I'm going to, you know, as we begin, I just want to sort of... Um, introduce you also using what you have written on your Twitter bio, which I found really interesting. You say, in my oppressive burqa, I travel, talk, cycle and bake. So you're obviously yes. being sarcastic over there, but yes. why are you calling the burqa oppressive burqa? Have you ever felt oppressed? Well, I haven't, but this actually started happening the last, I don't know, many years now, actually where I have people not just mansplaining, but also a lot of women as well, trying to convince me of my oppression. And uh, one of the first sort of, I think, uh, experiences was, this must be 2007, 2008. And, uh, you know, without getting into names, uh, and I'm going to do this really annoying thing, but air quotes, feminist in India, uh, who had this Twitter engagement with me, with the complete aim of just telling me you are oppressive and I would like to convince you of it. And at the time I thought it was absolutely baffling, but then I also used her words to name, to actually title one of my TEDx talks, uh, which uh, I gave in Groningen in Holland and it's titled, you are oppressed, you just don't know it as yet. <laughs> and so I kind of took that and then said, you know what, yes, I wear a really oppressive garb, but you know what I do, I cycle and I bake and I do everything else with it. So, you know, like live with it basically. Um, yeah, so that's how it basically, I mean, I'm, and people who follow me on Twitter will probably by now be used to like my sarcastic humor as well. Yeah, um, so that's when I, I first came across one of your tweets and that led me to doing some research on your TED Talks. You've, how many TED Talks have you, you know, sort of been on so far? Um, I've given two main stage TED talks and TEDx, um, I don't know, I don't know, four or five or something like that. Wow. And I think uh, in one of the talks, you mentioned that 
burqa is a different burden to bear in india and yeah. um, you know sort of the expectation that you have when you come back to india to you know sort of um, what sort of muslim you are are you progressive are you liberal there are so many checklists i mean you've obviously spoken about the reaction of people can you can you take us through a little bit of what that has been like and why do you specifically say burden to bear in india sure um so i think just for a very quick sort of a background so i my family is from rajasthan and we grew up in dubai my whole family we were all there in dubai and um, i moved to london about 10 years ago when i got married so my experience is sort of split between you know um, the rajasthani i won't even say completely indian but because uh, i i like to call myself a village person i love being in smaller villages than sort of cities in india and so it's that experience it's growing up in uae in dubai sharjah and it's now london and it was interesting for me because when i mean you know you grew up in dubai it was just everybody else sort of covers in a similar way so it was never a thing there like it didn't mean anything you're like out and about you're wearing this it's a thing and in our family i've always seen you know my aunts and grandmothers and all of them and the style of covering has evolved but they wore it so that it was never a thing that was discussed like hey let's discuss the burqa and then moving to london was interesting because suddenly i felt like my muslimness was a thing that people cannot see beyond what you're wearing um and just stop at that they don't humanize you in a way that they would with someone just wearing like regular non burqa clothes the interesting thing for me in india was actually a lot of my experience has always been just you know we land in in jaipur and then we just drive to our village um which is more like a, a, which is a small town rather now and so some couple of years ago i then you know started traveling more to the city side as well when i sort of bombay delhi and and the other cities and it was really interesting because i started seeing just how the perception was completely different and i remember sort of being outside this like fancy hotel in bombay and as i'm entering i sort of see all those security people at the door and the concierge and everyone ex- exchanging looks and you know they stop me at the door like you don't belong here like what are you doing here do you they actually asked me they're like do you know this is a five star hotel um and i thought that's pretty interesting actually i was going to the hotel because i was nominated for an award um you know for education work and everything else so part of me was part of that ceremony and so it was just really interesting so there was no sort of external event to to sort of instigate this or anything and um i found that just very interesting also then sometimes when we like visit doctors and so on the perception immediately when we start talking in english for example is no 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 you're not indian then like you're an arab because also i mean the way we cover people just assume we're arabs and um and i tell them i said no actually i'm not arab and so i don't know what, what is the saudi sort of connotation or reference point but everybody then they're like acha nahi nahi humne socha aap indian hai lekin aap to saudi ke hain and i was like no no dude very much indian and um, yeah so if i go to monuments they'll ask me at passport dikhaiye um, and things so all of that is fine because they're like we don't believe that like you're you know uh, not from here situation so i think um, i think it's gotten toxic and i remember once there was this um non muslim sort of you know someone calls themselves liberal and just was super insisting like 
I'm going to put you in a room with this other like really liberal Muslim friend of mine, you know, who just like um, her everything about what she wears is basically like not Muslim. And like, let me pitch you against her sort of a thing. I'm, I'm going to interrupt. What is Muslim and non-Muslim? So I'm, you know, I'm just, I'm really struggling here to fall into the kind of stereotypical way of saying this, but I'm just but saying. I want, to, I want to understand, like when, when people speak to you, what is this Muslim way of dressing and non-Muslim way of dressing that they are sort of conveying to you? So there's a friend of mine who describes herself as, you know, she's Hindu, uh, a liberal Hindu and has a Muslim friend who, you know, likes to wear the tikka, likes to dress up in a way that traditional Muslims wouldn't, whether they were the burqa or not. So not like a shalwar kameez and that sort of a thing. Um, so that immediately is identified as like, she must be a liberal Muslim because she doesn't conform to that idea. She has idols at home and, and so on. And, you know, I mean, I just think religion is, it's a personal thing. I choose to wear it on the outside in which a lot of people, you know, think it's, it's irony. I don't think it is. And I think the, the problem is that people corner you so much, you know, I mean, this is who I am. This is what I want to believe in and leave me alone. But they push you so much because almost trying to convince you of like, no, that's a wrong choice you're making. Um, and that's when I feel a little bit that the complicated, like I'm, I started becoming a little bit more careful with, especially in the Indian zone, even whether Twitter or outside of it. And, you know, I've never lived in India. So for me, Twitter was really like a portal of connection uh, reconnecting with people. I mean, I wouldn't have met you or so many other people. I wouldn't have really understood or gotten to know India if I didn't, if I wasn't there on Twitter. So it took me some time to start seeing this. And uh, yeah, so I, I've just realized the experience of being Muslim around the world is just so different. Uh, yeah. You don't have the luxury to disappear into like just any person. Yeah, 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 yeah. There are challenges within the community. Muslim community and I want to touch upon that and I also want to know the bigger challenge or perhaps the new challenge that we are seeing is these new so-called spokesperson on behalf of Islam or any other religion for that matter who perhaps feel that their opinions matter so when they say you are oppressed their perception is that oh but we are trying to empower you we are trying to make you come out of this oppressive attire that you're wearing so I want to know, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's intrusive? Do you think as a woman, it's um, there are boundaries that people are sort of crossing beyond when they tell you, whether from within the community or from outside the community? I think, first of all, I'm bored as hell and I have massive trust issues with people who try to be the voice of anybody. And before the whole kind of the Muslim discussion, that always comes up in anyone trying to do any grassroots work. Um, I'll just refer to India for now. And because I remember, I mean, for me, it was just very organic. You know, I'm not, um, I don't even claim myself to ever be an activist. For me, it was very organic. I was, you know, witnessing sitting in Dubai in sort of my cushy dream job looking at the entire sort of the Bombay terrorist attack unfold and feeling so much anger, but also trying to untangle the anger at the same time that, you know, it was not Kasab who is basically the root of everything. You can hang him, chop him into pieces and do all sorts of your horrible kind of dream come true, but you've not even touched the problem. So 
that guy is there. You can have millions of those if you're not. The only sort of long-term solution to that is empowering people through giving them choices and access to various opportunities. And, you know, I mean, there's no sort of like fun way of doing it, except it is through education. Like education kind of liberates you from sort of the tyranny of like the structures that we've created socially. And so that was a, just a thought that I said, I have no right to sit and complain and pontificate on like all the things that the politicians need to do when what am I doing in my own sort of capacity? And so the most immediate starting point for me was, you know, I grew up in, in this village, in this small town, and I don't have to look any further. I have my cousins, my people are, uh, you know, the construction workers dangling off a construction site in Dubai somewhere. They're my people and I cannot kind of ignore that or look away. So if I have cousins who don't have equal access to the kind of opportunities I have, like that was the immediate starting point. And so I went then to one of the local sort of villages in this school in our Mohalla and I started teaching um, over there. And, you know, they thought I probably came to do some annual charity stint and, but I would keep coming back. And I think there was that initial sort of an idea of, okay, things will really change. And I started seeing, and for me, I didn't come in with the thing of, I'm going to liberate you guys. It was really so much of a learning curve for me as well. So when I also started doing this, that kind of mindset shifted from, this is not your annual charity stint anymore. And then I started sort of recognizing patterns of resistance. And a lot of it always just came from men and also men who were in leadership positions as well. And, you know, they would be as silly as, so I then thought instead of sort of working in providing educational opportunities to pockets of people, what is the point in educating a girl or giving her these dreams and opportunities? But when she goes back home, the parents are actually not going to allow her um, to really, you know, expand um, in her education uh, scope. And so I thought, what I really need to do is do, do something that kind of brings the communities in this process as well. It's not pockets of people. And that for me was the sort of starting idea of um, organizing a TEDx event. And it was completely crazy also because, you know, they don't care about TED, what is TED, what is the branding, uh, what is TEDx. So if in the, in Marwadi, for example, in you, Hindi, like how we say TEDa, so in Marwadi, they'll say TEDo. So then trying to explain to them TED was basically telling them it's a word that basically means something is twisted. So it just did not connect with them. And then people ask me, well, so why did you insist on doing it as a TEDx? I did it because when those talks and that story goes online, it becomes part of the global TEDx network. And I wanted to bring those voices in this kind of global space. I didn't want to have it as some shiksha, some nailan, and like it sort of dies its own death after that. And um, it was interesting because of my first event, I worked on it for months and uh, I needed a space and that was supposed to be the same school where I had taught. And except uh, after working on this for months, a week before the event, uh, you know, the, some of the guys who had a problem with me doing this anyway, and one of their way to sort of deter me was, um, okay, you're, we'll let you do this if you're going to start wearing a niqab. So, you know, I was like, I'm not even going to think about it. I'm not going to wear a niqab for you. And so they're like, oh, well, your face which is the face cover. And, um, you know, I mean, people, if they choose to wear it, it's good for them. I choose not to wear it. 
And um, so I said, well, I'm not doing this. And so they're like, oh, well, so, you know, about a week before the event, I did not have a venue anymore. And so a lot of that, and then anyways, we went on to do this in a different venue and there were lots of people who came, but the attitude, I still remember there were these two or three like local newspaper people called them and explained to them in Hindi and explained to them the whole thing. And they were like, yeah, yeah, this is great. And I remember them just walking out and talking to each other and saying, uh, um, and I thought this is not, they're not going to publish anything about me. So I gave in a little ad and then, you know, my dad was like, do you really want to do this? And I said, listen, even if 10 people show up, this is happening. And I think on the day from like nearby hamlets and villages, we had about 1200 people who came and, uh, and it grew the next year. We had 5,000, then we had about 7,000. Now it's just, it's massive. And there are huge risks. It's all, it's just quite exhausting. But there was a lot of this sentiment of, um, you know, we won't listen to you. For example, in the second one that I did, it was very difficult for me to get any work done because none of the men, the guys on the team wanted to actually take instructions that I was giving them. And so I had to, if my father said the same thing, it would be done. But if I would ask them for the same thing, it would not be done. And then I had to create the team in such a way that there is uh, the people who I had initially taught I took two of them, a guy and a girl, and I gave them the sort of agency to create a team and they were given the tasks and then they sort of got it done through the network that they had created. So the initial conversation was always about, do girls deserve an education? You know, why should we even send them to school? And in the 10 years, and it's, it's quite anecdotal because I don't have hard numbers, but for example, I remember 10 years ago, the, the rate at which, so you only have schools that have till grade 10, 10th standard. And after that, girls would drop out and basically start teaching again, whether in KG or sixth or seventh standard. And only one to 2% of those girls would actually go and get a higher education because for that you had to travel out to like a, the, a nearby city or, uh, or at least 15, 20 minutes away by car, which a lot of people can't sort of, uh, it wasn't an option for them. And now when I go there, and that was the reason I did my last TEDx, which was in 2017, where I, um, I had so many women who would ask me that when is the next TEDx, when is the next TEDx? And I found that really, really interesting. Like I'll just be walking around and you find, sort of find these sort of, you know, uh, people working and doing their things and asking me, you know, when is the next one? We're really waiting for it. It was also like a carnival and it was also sort of a place where they got to hear new things, which is really interesting. Some of them would rattle off talks that happened in 2010, for example, 2010, 2011. I found that really fascinating. And nobody asks me now, why should women get an education? I have so many women come to me uh, when I'm there at the event and otherwise at home and tell me, you know, these are my five daughters and I brought them here and they're going to school now because, you know, We've seen you and we, we just want our daughters to become like you and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's definitely happening. It's so much interesting. I, then the other thing, I've, and I feel it's evolving. So I started doing this thing about a year, year and a half ago where I, because I can't really go to the village, it's been more than two years actually. And um, so I make these videos and the idea was again to talk to them and discuss, I call it digital church and I put them up on YouTube. And the idea is to explain to them and then open a discussion on, on my Facebook group on you know um, a TED talk that I've heard or something really interesting that I've heard and seen because the toxicity of the news cycle is so much that everybody only discusses politics and it takes you nowhere. 
So we started doing that. And that also has been very interesting and organic in the way that it's developed. And I, one thing I'm very, very particular about is the ease at which a woman can be attacked online. Um, and so, you know, I was very, very particular when the TEDx thing happened, I was getting a lot of flack. And I remember, you know, talking to some of the guys in my like volunteer team and everything, telling them this is happening. And they're also now kind of creeping in on the Facebook page and saying shitty things. And I absolutely did not tolerate because the, the sort of, you know, non-violence mantra will tell them, nay, nay, you just don't do anything and they'll go away. And I was like, no, they're not going to go away. And I just find it really interesting for the, the way these negative anti-women sentiments move from a physical space into a digital space. Yeah. But I think uh, it's really Go on. We are, like, I want to know the village that you work in, the communities that you're working, are they primarily Muslim communities or are they people from all mixed communities? The kind of trolling that you're getting now that you're saying they're shifting to your digital space as well. Is it, do you think it's an attack because of your religious identity or it's just patriarchy and it's just sort of a reaction because you're trying to do something to empower the women, their women, and, and you're sort of leading them towards the things that they're afraid of, you know, yeah. wanting their wives and daughters to do? I don't think it is religious, first in nature. I don't think it has anything to do with that. It's more towards uh, patriarchal notions. It's more towards the way actually a woman is perceived. And the kind of complicated thing is that, you know, I always tell this to people when in London, for example, or wherever, when they sit there, I always tell them that they, it, it, it's this image of imagining you're sitting there and you have people gnawing at you, trying to like rip your burqa off. That is what everybody wants to do. They just think that like, we'll make her stop wearing it and suddenly you've reformed Islam in some twisted notion. And I always tell them that you don't understand the reality. There are a lot of girls going to school in villages because I'm wearing this because, and they all, I heard this so many times that the thing for them is not like suddenly they've realized like education is such an important thing. They associate education with loss of like value, losing your sanskar, for example. So for me, this is not really a religious issue. It exists in the Hindu community and they have a much higher rate of education uh, compared to the Muslim communities for sure. But this exists in both and especially Muslim communities a lot more. And you have insecure men sort of everywhere who would try to do this. And, and for me, the kind of trolling came from some of the guys who had volunteered, but then suddenly just realized they, that they can't just like, I'm not a pushover and I'm leading this and simply could not handle that. So I think, you know, and the hypocrisy of these men being the ones who do these uh, mahilas, okay, I can't say it, sashaktikaran, um, women empowerment campaigns. Um, and the hypocrisy of that is quite baffling, but de definitely not a religious sin for sure. You, in your TED Talks, mentioned that burqa is always the first thing people notice about you. Do you find it intrusive? How, how do you react to people when, when, you know, that's the first thing that they notice about you? You know, I cannot um, control what other people notice, right? Some people will say, oh, I, when I meet people, I notice their teeth or their eyes or whatever. So I think everybody, it's maybe just human nature that they, they tend to pick on what they want to. I think the more sort of insidious thing is when they judge you on basis of that. 
So it's a different thing to notice something. And I'm sure, you know, there's, I, I would completely understand if someone does notice, notice my burqa, and especially if it is something that's a little bit more alien to, you know, their, uh, their upbringing and their background as well. And because this is really like, uh, also in a non-Indian context, for example, my, my last work was, you know, working with a Norwegian company, a lot of Norwegian colleagues, and this is a very foreign thing to them. So I don't actually mind when, you know, when people even have questions and when they ask me things, I think what I'm feeling exhausted with over just so many years, and I always say this, that every generation sort of has their watershed moment. It's a moment that sort of defines you, um, an external moment. And for me, that was 9-11. And for me, it was, you know, the Iraq invasion and, and, and everything else that has happened after that. I also lived in the Middle East at the time. So these experiences are much closer. And since then, there has been this, uh, you know, I've considered myself that I don't have the luxury to just close off and, and just say, I'm not going to be part. I was always open for communication and for dialogue. But I feel in just all these years, in these like 20 years, I'm really tired because I feel exhausted because I feel like we've done, or I'll speak for myself, I've done so much emotional and intellectual labor since then in not only challenging people within our Muslim communities, but also externally. Yet I feel that we've just been on this journey and a lot of other people haven't. You know, a friend of mine just very casually be asking me, are there fundamentalists in your family? And people think it's perfectly acceptable. If I walk down a central London street, people sort of, I've been stopped by a guy saying, I hate what you're wearing or, People coming to me and saying in co coffee shops, I, oh, I was listening to your conversation and I can't reconcile that. How can you be a feminist when you wear this? And for me, the initial shock is not even of their, their questions. It is how dare you kind of intrude into my space because I would love for you to do that if I could also do that. If I can stop you and say, I think that shirt looks ugly on you. You have completely the absolute right to like tell me I don't like what you're wearing. So I think that the lack of the balance, the fact that this is so one-sided and that burden of it sits with me, I think that pisses me off. Whether it's feminism, whether it is Islam and all of that, the burden of that education is somehow on me. And that is something I've engaged with a lot over the last many, many years. And I feel now I'm exhausted. If you're not going to bring your piece of work to the table, then like I have no obligation to actually, I'm going to let you sit with your ignorance until you know you sort of deal with it on your own. So I'm happy to have the conversation, but I'm really tired of this one-sided labor. And I think it's a Toni Morrison quote, which I absolutely love. And she says how um, racism is the distraction. You know, people are going to continue doing all kinds of great things in life. And you're going to be sitting there explaining racism to people. And I'm sort of done with that. I feel like, yeah, why am I still sitting and talking to you about Islamophobia and all of this nonsense every time there is a global event that happens when you haven't done your side of the work? Um, yeah. So that, yeah, that is maybe the more frustrating bit of this. But do you, living in London, experience Islamophobia? Oh, I mean, London is, the, the in my experience, the sort of central kind of the first point of like my experience with Islamophobia. And over the last sort of 10 years, I really even looking at it globally, I think, you know, we've kind of moved from phobia. It's not just a, a fear of Muslim and, and everything. I think it's a, I think it's an innate, it's become a hatred almost. You know, there are people who will 
And I think the difference actually I found here is it's not just the non-Muslims, it's also the Muslims, you know, the, the sort of liberal Muslims, people who don't want to cover and, and all of that, um, just sort of looking at me as someone who is maybe oppressed or backward. I remember, um, I mean, this friend of mine, she's, you know, and I don't take these things to heart. There's a lot I don't take to heart. Otherwise, I probably won't be alive now. And I remember she was my first Twitter friend in London. She's a Muslim person. And so we once we said, listen, let's meet up and, and whatever. And at the time, I didn't have my full face sort of on Twitter. It was just something I thought I'm not going to last on Twitter. So I just like had like some eye thing going anyway. So I'm standing there outside Piccadilly Circus Station and she's there and I was, I'm waving at her um, and she's looking at me, which I think she's looking at me. And she's like, but I can't see you. And I was like, okay, I'm seriously not that skinny. You cannot miss me. And um, finally, when I met her, she told me, she said, okay, I am really embarrassed, but I have to tell you this. All the engagements we've had on Twitter so far, I always look at you as someone who's really intellectual and, and, and all of that. When you were standing in front of me, I could not ever imagine that that person was, could be wearing a burqa. And that's why she kept looking at me and sort of almost looking through me because she thought that I could not be that person. And so I think that's very evident with a lot of kind of the experience I've had in London with like Muslims almost looking down. So I think it's just, um, there, there can't be a generalization, you know, it's just, uh, so I, I let it be, I engage how much ever I can. And, uh, but I know people come with their notions for sure. Like I still tell people that, you know, this oppression that you speak of, I mean, I still get messages saying, uh, oh, look, I, I watched this. What do you think about the headscarf? I'm like, seriously, man, we're done. This is 2020, we're done talking about the headscarf. I'm sure by now, you know, more people within your sort of workplace or online communities, if not in person, but also as celebrity, whether it's Iftihaj Muhammad and so on. You know, enough people now, who'll kick your ass and they wear headscarves and niqabs and burqas or whatever the hell they want to wear. Find me one person who you really know is sitting in some cave in Afghanistan who's like really oppressed because that is still like the kind of visual sort of connotation of it. And they can't say it. I'm not saying that is not a reality. That is. My sister chose just not to wear it. TK, we are in a family where that was allowed and it's okay. Um, and a lot of times I tell people that if you find someone who's really oppressed and sort of pressurized into wearing this, then you need to look deeper because that is not her only story. That means there are many other rights that are taken away from that girl. If you see that maybe she's not even allowed to have an education, she's not allowed to marry who she wants, she's not allowed many other things. So don't stop at that tokenistic thing. Like you're gonna do nothing if someone removes a headscarf or they don't, you know? So uh, I think it means nothing. All right. On that note, thank you so much, Masarat, for taking your time out. It was wonderful to have you on the Sanya Paruki show. For those of you who've tuned in and have watched till the end, thank you so much. We are going to have a lot more discussions over the next uh, couple of weeks. So I hope that you're going to subscribe to the YouTube channel, follow us on Twitter and Facebook, and don't forget to leave your comments and feedback. Avoid trolling because um, as, you know, I'm you won't get much reply from me if you're going to <laughs> troll me. But um, I do hope to engage in, um, you know, a lot of meaningful conversations in the future. So thank you so much for watching and I will see you again next week.